As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Total Soccer Show and an episode that we are calling The Weekend Review. It was a weekend where Chelsea showed us they were a bit like the Spice Girls. They'll still bring the goods when one of the team drops out. Arsenal showed us they're a bit like Limp Biscuit, Pretty big in the late 90s and early 2000s, but you wouldn't admit you were a fan of them right now. PSG showed us they were a bit like the Travelling Wilburys, packed with megastars that you remember more fondly from other things. And both LAFC and LA Galaxy showed us they were like any band with a bad drummer as they weren't interested in keeping it tight at the back. My name is Ryan Bailey. Joining me today is a man who always trusts the process, Taylor Rockwell. <laughs> I do accept when the process relates to assembling supergroups because sometimes they hit. Oftentimes they really do miss. Right, I was listening to The Highwaymen this weekend, which is Willie Nelson, Johnny mm. Cash, Chris Christopherson, and Waylon Jennings. They should be great. They sound so low energy, like even they don't want to be there, and they're covering all these great songs. <laughs> and it it was it was disappointing. Yeah, sometimes when you assemble the All Star Squad, it doesn't have that that level of of positivity and energy that maybe you want from the more organic uh, structure. Have you heard The High Women? I think it's called as well. It's like Marin Morris and a few other female country stars. Taylor. I have not. I can't tell if that's a Ryan Bailey joke or if that's real. No, it's true. That's a thing. That's a thing. (laughs) Now I can't tell if that's a Ryan Bailey joke. See, it's ongoing. It's It's a whole House of Mirrors situation. I can assure you, you can look on your music player later and find them, Taylor. But in the meantime, my point about trusting the process... Mm-hmm. I've always wondered what that phrase means because I understand like about the concept of being process driven and process led, but does it just mean we're not making it up on the spot? <laughs> I mean, I think it used to mean like, hey, we've got a process, we've got a system, you've just got to give it some time. When you've been there for a good long while and the process continues to seem like as soon as it does start functioning, a thing it's like trusting the process behind building a DeLorean. Like eventually you've got to realize that maybe this process isn't working for mass producing a vehicle and you scrap the plans altogether and at that point you're no longer trusting the process. I don't know if that's how close to the edge arsenal are but uh maybe they should be or maybe they should invent a time machine and go back and change some things 
Oh yeah, the history of the DeLorean, and I'm seeing the history of Arsenal right now. There's there's some there's some intertwining factors there, Taylor. Let's say that. Anyway, joining us here is a man who would definitely play more than 30 minutes on his PSG debut. It's Joe Lowry. <laughs> I'm starting, man. There's no way I'm coming off the bench. It was, to be honest, though, it, it was kind of a cool moment. I I know the whole Messi Neymar uh, Mbappe trio didn't happen, and that made me genuinely really sad. But it's so sad that I just hit my microphone. But I will say there is some, I don't know, some level of impressiveness when you're coming off the bench and you can have that ovation. I don't know. There, I thought there was some value in that. There was some value, but it was surely massive trolling from Rizzo Pochettino to take <laughs> off Neymar at the point you bring on Messi, right? Oh, of course. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if Poch just had a bad morning, had a bad day, had a bad week, but uh, we, we wanted to see it, Poch. Come on, man. We will, I'm sure, in the near future, Joe. We'll be talking about that PSG game later on in the show as well. But joining us in our quadrant, quadrant, quadruple, foursome, is a man who won't be found on Twitter complaining about a referee looking at a still image. It's Graham Ruffin. <laughs> Hello, Ryan. Yes, that's that's not me. The, the Twitter discourse over the weekend was 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 pretty wild over some of the refereeing decisions. Mm. Uh, I'm really glad that we now have VAR to sort everything out and to make sure there's no debate about any contentious stuff. <laughs> yeah, it's cleared everything right up, isn't it? It's done exactly what it intended. So that's wonderful, Graham. You're quite right there. The Twitter discourse I was interested in, Graham, however, was a, a video of a Scotsman saying three words. Oh, no. Purple, <laughs> burglar, alarm. Let's hear it, Graham. Purple burglar alarm? Yes, oh, I did you it. Can do it. <laughs> I nailed it. There's so many times I've tried that and not done it. So that that, that oh, was say it uh, again quicker. Say it again That was nothing right but net. Purple burglar alarm. Purple oh, burglar you alarm. It. I can do it. <laughs> I, I want to know. So Ryan, we did a little bit of this on Soccer 101 last week, and Graham wasn't feeling confident enough to go with the final sentence. The burden purple murderers infers the preferred referral. Graham, you want to try oh, that one this time? Oh, okay. no, not a chance. <laughs> I had to no. find my notes to remember why I wrote down that sentence. There you go. <laughs> well, no, we have plenty uh, plenty to talk about this week uh, of this weekend's action, gents. Lots of games to talk about in the Premier League, uh, in MLS as well. Rivalry week raged on over the weekend and uh, plenty else across the continent as well. But a rather big uh, bit of news dropped in the uh, past few days. Uh, Cristiano Ronaldo. Uh, leaving Juventus and moving to Manchester United. Uh, Taylor, as a Manchester United fan, wanted to get your thoughts on this move. Ole Gunnar Solskjaer reportedly uh, has a title-winning squad. That's according to Jonathan Wilson, mm-hmm. uh, who says the time for excuses is over. Uh, does 36-year-old Cristiano Ronaldo really swing the uh, swing the fulcrum towards title-winning that much? What does he add exactly yeah. for you? Uh, a conundrum for mm. me, I, I think, is my answer to that. I would also say Olegano Solskjaer, maybe not the person to be trusted when it comes to his quotes, given that I believe he referred to Cristiano Ronaldo as a wonderful human being. And that is sort of the the like crux of the issue is I, I'm a Manchester United fan. I was in my like early 20s, I think it was, or mid-20s when he was uh, playing for Man United. I was in college when he was like the, the player that was single-handedly winning games. And I remember really, really worrying, is he going to leave for Real Madrid and hoping he wouldn't? And Rooney offering to sign a contract extension and be like, no one cares about you, Wayne Rooney. Everybody wants Ronaldo <laughs> to stay. And it's strange to go from that to he returns. And I was ambivalent to apprehensive to downright not happy that he was back. I kind of wanted him to go to Man City because it would have given me another reason to root against him and against Manchester City because for people who are maybe have just avoided Twitter, which is always a good idea, um, 
There are allegations of rape against Cristiano Ronaldo. I would say there is a lot of evidence behind those allegations. It came about from football leaks, which is why it sometimes gets discredited or dismissed. But I do sort of believe those accusations. And so it makes it really hard to be excited about this player returning to the club that I love because it's difficult in that moment to separate the art from the artist. And and I think even to a strange degree, it's like if he were... I don't know, in prison for drunk driving or if he had gotten into a, a fist fight in a Greek in a Greek like resort. Uh, I think you can. Eh, we've all been there. We've all had a few too many on Mykonos. Uh, but like the, the accusations against Ronaldo are so severe and so troubling that it makes it really difficult to kind of get behind it. And, he, and even wonder, like, is he going to make the team better? Are they going to score goals? It's it's more of a uh, a a head scratcher for me right now. It it does sort of make you question the notion of fandom a little bit, doesn't it, I suppose? Because you're supposed to love your team. Well, you do. Generally, one does love one's team, uh, whatever the weather. But if there is someone who signs for that team who who there are allegations or they, they have a, a past that uh, mm-hmm. uh, doesn't sit with your values, then it can make it difficult. So I, I, I know where you're coming from, Taylor, but and I don't really have a solution yeah. for you because presumably you're still going to watch Man United, right? I am. I, I think it, it removes a lot of the enthusiasm I think I was feeling about this team. I was determined to go back to just being positive and excited because there's fun players and it's Ole and why not? Who cares? It's soccer. It's 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 not real life. We should be just kind of using it as the relaxation method that it can be. And now I do. I found myself this weekend knowing Ronaldo was was incoming, being more critical of the team and being more frustrated with them and just sort of being like, Ugh, whatever. And kind of at times like pulling a bit more for Wolves because it was the TSS Derby and there mm. are uh, the the connection there. Uh, so it, it was definitely a, a weird one and one that I think I'm going to have to kind of keep thinking about. I'm guessing I'm not alone when it comes to Man United fandom because there's a feeling of, you know, I'm just going to focus on the, on the on-field performance and I'm going to let all that other stuff go. But then there comes the... The criticism, accusation, whatever you want to go with of like, yeah, but isn't that convenient? Aren't you sort of taking a stance by not taking a stance? And it becomes a very strange moral ethical conundrum that I don't really have an answer for because I, I don't have one of them them big philosopher brains that can handle such questions. Oh, I don't believe that. You certainly do, Taylor. But um, Joe, I'll ask you more about the soccer side of things. What do you think Ronaldo brings? Does he raise the raise the uh, the, the bar for this team? And can he play defensive midfield? Because that might be where he's most useful. <laughs> the last question is the easiest to answer. No, I mean, can he? Yes, actually, that is that is the correct answer. But should he? Almost certainly not. I think that would be a train wreck. I've always wanted to see Messi play as a six and just do his best Pirlo impression and then just snake through a bunch of players. I think that'd be fun. Ronaldo a little bit less so. I do think he makes this team better from a a pure soccer standpoint. He is a versatile attacking player. He shifted more towards the number nine position off of the wing over the last good number of years at this point. But he brings depth, if nothing else, right? He brings another option to play at a number of different spots. Manchester United have a lot of attacking depth already. But, you know, we see across Europe, the best teams are teams that can withstand injuries and and still make runs in European competitions and still be strong in the league. And having another body who can play at a high level, I think I, I can't manipulate this into looking like something where Ronaldo doesn't help this team in some way from a soccer standpoint. Graham, and I do. So, I I was just going to say, and I do uh, enjoy the idea. I think I heard 
on the Guardian, maybe. Uh, no, it was on it was on uh, the Athletics uh, Football Podcast that they were saying basically it's as good of a move for Manchester United as it is as it is to deprive Manchester City of having Cristiano Ronaldo because he does seem to fit a lot of boxes for what they would have liked. That said, they look just fine this weekend. But I think. I don't really buy into the idea that like we couldn't do this to Manchester United fans. We couldn't let him go play for Manchester City. I think maybe that was part of the calculation, but there was a larger one of if he goes there, he's going to score a million goals and will be remembered as this great goal scorer for them. We don't want that, so they made that move. And I think Joe's right. He probably does help not just in terms of what he brings to goal scoring and to being a goal threat that other defenders will have to deal with, but like Mason Greenwood is a player who grew up rooting for Ronaldo, loving Ronaldo. I think Marcus Rashford is the same. And so to have that kind of legendary player return and this player that was so formative to a lot of these guys' careers, there's no way he isn't a, a leadership figure. There, There's no way there isn't some deferral to him. And even somebody like Paul Pogba, I think, probably knows that his influence and sway is is at least somewhat diminished because of it's Cristiano Ronaldo we're talking about. So I think there will be a pretty big impact on and off the field uh, with him arriving, which I, I guess is going to happen this week at some point. The medicals happened. Here we go. Yeah. It seems like it's the Newcastle game, I think, which is a 3 p.m. kickoff, which I think might be his first game. Uh, so we'll look forward to that one. Not on UK TV. <laughs> Not on UK TV. 3 p.m. blackout, which is as archaic as it ever was, Graham, as a, as a rule. Um, I'll ask you, Graham, about uh, on Taylor's point of um, his influence, Ronaldo's influence uh, in the dressing mm-hmm. room and beyond. We saw... At Euro 2016, where he basically became the coach of the team, uh, no, pushing them over the line to win that thing. Is there a risk that he gets a bit big for his boots and starts, you know, he's, he's, he's buds with Ole Gunnar Solskjaer from back in the day. Is there, a, maybe he asserts himself a little too much at this team? Uh, yeah, I think that is that is a risk, and it's going to be a real test, not just of Solskjaer as a as a coach to integrate him into this team. I, th- I actually think that will be a little bit easier than many people uh, predict just because I see him as the I think he'll play I think he'll get the game time that Cavani would have got and that and he's actually probably a better fit for that minuted front line and that he can go out right he can go out left he can play through the middle so he's got a bit more fluidity that that Cavani doesn't have but yeah it's going to be a real test of of Solskjaer as a man manager and up until now that's probably been Solskjaer's best quality we spoke about that last week on the listeners questions po- podcast uh, Ryan but if, if so, if, you know, Ronaldo's 36 years old now, he's going to have dips in form. He's still one of the best goal scorers around, but he is, he does fluctuate now in his form. And if Manchester United have Greenwood and Sancho and Rashford, for example, all playing better football and they've got a big game, is Solskjaer going to have the standing and the status in that dressing room to drop Cristiano, Cristiano Ronaldo from the first team? Is he now obligated to start a 36-year-old in every match that they play and play him for every single minute? Last season, we actually saw that that Pirlo was kind of rotating him out in and out of the, the team a little bit. So it can be done, but that that's definitely going to be an interesting facet of this signing. Ryan, two two final things for me, and then we can move on to not Manchester United topics. In In, in having some time to think, as Joe and Graham were talking, I think I've come around to the idea for me that like I, I'm not just going to abandon the club that I've like grown up supporting because they've re-signed Cristiano Ronaldo. And I think if I were going to go that route, I would have needed to have done that earlier when some of the accusations about Ryan Giggs came out. Uh, another person who I grew up idolizing and now here we are. Um, so I think probably what it is for me is to continue to support the team that I like, 
And I think Manchester United fans are more than welcome to do the same. But I think where I'll draw the line is sort of the celebration of the player that like like when Mason Greenwood scored that goal this weekend, I think I tweeted like Mason Greenwood is life. I don't think I will be praising Cristiano Ronaldo that maybe that's how I will do it. It's sort of like, oh, that was a good goal versus like Mason Greenwood is the greatest human being on earth. Marcus Rashford should be world president. I don't maybe it's about celebrating versus accepting a player has been signed to your club. I will uh, keep tabs on that and call you up on it as appropriate, Taylor. How's that? <laughs> please do. <laughs> Genuinely, please do. My second thing that I think is also fueling some of the negativity, and this is a footballing thing, is that that wasn't, in my mind, an area of need. As Graham said, he can do some things other people couldn't, but you had Ensign Cavani. There's still Anthony Martial. I think at least Anthony Martial's body is definitely still employed by Manchester United. <laughs> I don't know what else is going on there. But I really wished that they had more aggressively pursued a holding midfielder, and it does seem like they're not going to do that. It doesn't seem like they're going to find somebody to play the single pivot. And I kind of, at first jokingly, and then slowly talked myself into it, I feel like I have a player that I think would fit that spot very well, but it feels very odd because it is an American. So what I would like to do is hear Graham describe what he thinks Manchester United need, and then Mm -hmm. I would like to hear Joe Agree or disagree as to whether or not that player is specifically Tyler Adams. But Graham, <laughs> if they were going to sign one, like fill one role in that center midfield, what are the qualities you think they most need? You might have influenced this uh, with uh, with your description of the player's name there, Taylor, but go on. Yeah, okay. So the first quality is they should be American. Uh, <laughs> there it is. Thanks, Graham. <laughs> no, the first the first quality for me, having watched a lot of my Manchester United and watched them on, on Sunday, I was covering that game, is, is just a lot of pitch coverage. They need someone who can essentially do what N'Golo Kante does or Wilfred Ndidi does or uh, Casemiro's another one. Busquets used to be this player, but is a little bit older now and is not as capable. But they need someone who can basically go from left to right and sweep in front of that back four, but also someone who is capable of taking the ball into feet, resisting a high press. That is a key part as well, because that is, I think, arguably the worst thing about Fred is as soon as you apply pressure on him, he panics and gives up the ball. And yeah, so those are the two things. And I resist a high press and can actually kind of start moves as well. And that, that is the, the perfect, the, those players are so valuable in modern football and most clubs in the, most of the best clubs in Europe in the Premier League have one and Manchester United don't. That's the player they need. Oh, Taylor. I think it's close. I still, maybe this is my own demon, you know, that I have to figure out here. I don't know that Tyler Adams has the quality on the ball to be that complete holding midfielder at this point in his career. That said, I do think he has actively been improving with his ability on the ball and his ability under pressure. I just, I need to see more of him before that happens. So this, I mean, this might be a case where Manchester United made the right move by not going after Tyler Adams. It feels like they need a complete number six to cover a lot of the the weaknesses that they have and to mask those things. And I think Tyler Adams can certainly cover that ground. I'm not personally as convinced that he can do all of that work that Graham's describing. All right. Well, can I get a counterpoint then? Joe, Joe can you just say real fast, um, Tyler Adams is the answer? Tyler Adams is the answer. Boom, there's a the sound bite, Taylor. There we go. And whoever is editing, can you just delete what Joe said in the first part and then put that part back in? And now we have our answer. Cool. Okay, we all agree Tyler Adams is the truth and we'll make Manchester United the best team on the planet. 
Very good. The, Whoever's editing, perfect. make note that we, we're 17 minutes in and we haven't spoken about yeah. any of the weekend re- <laughs> soccer yet on this weekend review. So why don't we start doing that? Uh, let's get to the Premier League action, shall we? Beside Manchester United, Tottenham atop of the league after a 1-0 win at Watford. There's another North London team at the very bottom of the Premier League. We'll get to them shortly. Uh, my pre-season preview of West Ham suggested they'd be in trouble with only Mikel Antonio to rely on. Uh, he's, you know, <laughs> scored his fourth goal and his third assist of the season this weekend in a 2-2 draw West Ham's 2-2 draw with Crystal Palace and the aforementioned Manchester United were in the TSS derby with a 1-0 win over Wolves with completely high quality soccer and no reason to doubt them throughout right Taylor right 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 yeah, of course. Yep. No reason to doubt at all. Everything's good. great. Very good. In that case, let's move on to the, let's call it the box office game of the weekend. Liverpool against Chelsea. This one finishing 1-1 at Anfield. Um, Graham, on the US coverage, we had Arlo White saying he could only hear Lee Dex- Dixon next to him because he was wearing like the headphones nails speaking to each other uh, on comms. Very, very loud atmosphere at Anfield and a highly entertaining game, particularly in the first half here. Um you know, a full stadium Anfield, by the way. COVID cases 26 times higher now than they were one year ago in the UK. Just slipping that in there. Full stadium Anfield. Uh, what did you make of the uh, of this game, Graham? It was uh, a pretty entertaining one, for at least the first half, I'd say. Yeah, certainly. And, and the first half, I thought, was a, a very high-quality encounter. It's interesting you mentioned that the crowd noise there, because that was actually a good barometer, I thought, of how the how the game went. So the first 10 minutes was was deafening. Liverpool were on top. It really felt that like they were taking the game to Chelsea. And as the, the first half kind of progressed, Chelsea just started to take control of things, obviously take the lead through Kai Havertz. What a header that is, mm. by the way. He he entirely means it, in, in, in my eyes anyway. Um, a kind of backwards header from a from a corner looked over Alison Becker into into the far corner and so at he, that you point you definitely thought he meant that Graham because that if he did that's unbelievable I think I think he does yeah and I think Agreed. it is unbelievable I think Kai Havertz is that good as I, I I one of the part of the piece that I wrote after that game was you know all eyes on Lukaku at the moment obviously 98 million pound striker who kind of completes that team but I expect in a few years that Kai Havertz is going to be the absolute star of that Chelsea team and a potential Ballon d'Or. Like that's how good I think he is. Like I think he is a. I think he could be anything. We're talking about Cristiano Ronaldo there. Sorry, I'm off on a bit of a tangent here. But we're talking about Cristiano Ronaldo there. I look at any player in European football who could do what Ronaldo did and completely transform his game into becoming the complete forward. And I think Havertz is my number one pick. Wow. Uh, that's how good I think he can be. Like, I've been a massive fan of him for so long. So, uh, yeah, I think he means it. And uh, towards the end of the first half of this game, it just felt like Chelsea were going to kind of accelerate away from Liverpool until, obviously, the the, the big moment, the, 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 the red cards and the penalty, which completely changes the dynamic. But even after that, the way Tuchel reshaped his team with the introduction of Kovacic and, and uh, Thiago Silva, it allowed Chelsea to to claim something from this match with 10 men. And, and to be honest, in the second half, as much as, the, as Liverpool had loads of the ball and territory, I felt like Chelsea were pretty comfortable. And if anything, in the last 15 minutes, I, I felt like Chelsea were arguably the mo- they looked the more dangerous on the counter-attack. And the one mistake I thought Tuchel made was just for those last 10 minutes, I would have put on... Timo Werner and said, right, go for it. You take a chance on on a counter-attack and we can potentially get three points here. But I think Chelsea might look at this as two points dropped in a game where I thought they were well on course to winning. But I think they've gained an aura from this match where even going down to 10 men away to Anfield played a full full half of football with 10 men at 1-0. And they, they certainly looked like the better coach team to me in that second half. And they're just going to be so difficult to topple this season. 
Yeah. And um, halftime on the NBC coverage, Taylor, I think it was Tim Howard and Robbie Earl. They were asked by Rebecca Lowe, who's going who's gonna to win this game? They both just said Liverpool straight away. No question about that. And we have to give credit to Chelsea and Thomas Tuchel's game management there for being really well organised, so good defensively, particularly that second half, and just shutting it down. They just shut mm-hmm. that game down in the second half. Yeah, because, I mean, we've talked about this many times on the show, but a, a massive change in the game both conceding the equalizer but also having a player sent off right before halftime it it changes the entire outlook to the game and it changes everything that you were going to say when you go in at halftime and that might not seem like that big of a thing it's just like oh now we're tied we got to fight more but it but it's it's it, you have to kind of reimagine everything you're telling people what your instructions are going to be because maybe in the past it was okay i need you to stay back i need you to do this defensive thing and now you're maybe trying to to, to get the winner but still maintain a tight defense and you have to change your instructions but the biggest thing you have to do if you're Thomas Tuchel is just calm things down and get your team refocused and there's yellow cards that happen for dissent after this decision it would have been easy for Tuchel to sort of let the moment overwhelm him and lose focus and spend half time just railing about the injustice of things and I think it speaks volumes that he clearly has a detailed plan for them at halftime about how to make life difficult for Liverpool because I too would have thought oh they're going to win this one by a couple goals that they didn't is pretty impressive, and that they didn't, despite having that man advantage for the entire second half, is even more so impressive. Now, um, this might be the latest episode of Ryan Doesn't Understand the Rules of Soccer, but the, the Tony <laughs> Pop we're talking about here, the red card for Reese James for the ball coming off his knee and apparently hitting both his arms. Joe, any thoughts on this? And we had criticism oh. of Anthony Taylor as well. But I'm sorry I have to come to you. I don't have to come to you, Joe. But no, no, no. Anthony, <laughs> Anthony Taylor going to the monitor and only just taking a glance at one still and deciding that's enough to, for me for that to be uh, a red card and a penalty. Um, I mean, it is a denial of a goal-scoring opportunity, but I think there's some, you know, some people saying didn't Osi Perez do that in the FA Cup final as well? And 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 where, where do we stand on this? And and the concept of double jeopardy as well, because you know not only a penalty but a sending off there. It's it's a pretty big punishment, isn't it? It is. And so my understanding, and I'm happy to just be steamrolled and bulldozered here if I'm wrong. <laughs> my understanding is that when you're in that position on the goal line, when you are denying a goal scoring opportunity, the ball. As far as my eyes could tell, did hit Reese James's arm or forearm or whatever. It, 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 that is that is a penalty, right? That is a penalty because you're denying that goal scoring opportunity. And by the rule book, as I understand it, that's also a red card. Now, that's not to say that I think that that is a good rule, right? That seems so incredibly harsh that in that moment, not only do Chelsea have to then, you know essentially they allow Liverpool the equalizer, but they also go down a man. And now in this game, it actually kind of ended up working out for them. And they defended really well in the second half, like we've already talked about. But by my understanding of the rules, this was officiated correctly. Do I think that the rules should be written the way they are? No. Anyone else? Any arguments on that, Taylor? Your thoughts? I think as soon as you see that replay where it's not just that it hits his arm, like if his arm is there, the ball hits it and then it drops down and he just kicks it clear, maybe it's still given. But I think there there is a motion from him that is definitely a, I'm using my arm to push the ball away from goal. And I think it's probably subconscious. He probably doesn't even realize he's doing it. But when as soon as they were going to look at that with VAR, you know they're going to slow that down and it becomes... Just so much more intentional when you make that gesture slow motion. 
And I think I was expecting to see that slow-mo replay and then have it be given. I wasn't really expecting it to be that quickly, (laughs) given the way it was. Uh, But I think Joe summed it up really well. And I think the reason why it's the red card is because you can't legally make a play with your hand in that in that situation if it had been a slide tackle that maybe he clipped him then it's going to be a yellow card and a penalty instead of the red card of the penalty so I think there's confusion and I understand why people feel hard done by but in the end I think yeah he he stops it with his hand there's a little bit of a gesture to push the ball away from the line I understand why that's given and why it's a red card the other thing to to mention is there's there was a bit of confusion over Previously, there was part of the law was if it was a deflection onto an arm, then that was taken into account. But that that part of the law has actually now been eliminated for this season. Um, so that was not part of the the VR or the referee's decision making. The fact that it kind of comes off his leg and up onto his onto his arm slightly, um, that is that's not part of the the, the process now. So to I conclude, to- the rules were uh, followed pretty closely. Yeah, just frust- maybe frustratingly <laughs> so. But I, I, I want to then switch to praising a player, and that player is Mohamed Salah, because everything around him taking the penalty and scoring the penalty was like so just what you want to see a veteran player do. He doesn't get involved in any of the, the fracas, any of the confusion. Is it going to be a call? He just has the ball, and he puts it down. He puts it on the spot and then stands over it like he's going to take the penalty. And then the camera shows three Chelsea players pursuing the official. They're walking towards the ball. It cuts to a different angle. It cuts back, and he is now holding it. So it's pretty clear that somebody came in and like tried to kick it, or he thought maybe somebody would. So he picks the ball up, and even there, a player can get really mad and frustrated, and I think that's exactly what Chelsea were trying to do. You have Mendy maybe a foot away staring into his face right as he's about to take it. Jorginho walks past and taps him on the chest and maybe gives him a like, hey man, good luck, but also maybe says something else to him. And I think that Salah is completely unaffected by any of that. I mean, smashes the penalty, goes off to celebrate. Then there's the scrum after the penalty because Henderson goes to get the ball. Mendy kicks it clear. Does kind of look like he kicks at Henderson when he does that. Everybody's involved except for Mohamed Salah, who's just sort of celebrating and then jogs back to midfield. The lack of engagement in all of the other stuff to just stay focused on scoring a goal and then going back to restart the game. I think even more praise for Mohamed Salah than we would already be giving him. Definitely so. Um, Graham, um, if we're going to praise any other Liverpool players, perhaps we should give a, a spotlight to Harvey Elliott. I think you yeah. wrote something about him this week. Uh, on the commentary, once again, I'm, I'm referring a lot to embassy commentary, but it, it stood out to me that um, Lee Dixon compared him to Leo Messi and then, yeah. and then took that comment yeah. back a little bit, but you could see what he was kind of <laughs> bad, saying. Bad idea, bad idea. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure how much I'm buying in, in, into that one, even even kind of uh, tactically. I'm not I'm not sure I see that, but um, I, I guess maybe in kind of his, his, his technical ability, and that he's quite diminutive and, and looks kind of like the ball sticks to his feet a little bit. I can see it there. He seemed to be the only player in the Liverpool midfield in the second half who was who was bringing any sort of urgency. He was the one quickening things up. I felt Liverpool were a bit too ponderous at times, almost as if they felt, well, we've got 10 men. We're, sorry, we're playing against 10 men. We're going to get a second goal here. And he was kind of the only one, as I say, bringing that urgency. No, nobody made more passes than Elliot, so 86. Um, he made four crosses, two three ball, uh, through balls, one key pass, and he had uh, two shots as well. And he also made two interceptions, which shows kind of how he put in kind of an all-round uh, midfield performance. And he was he was very much taking up the positions in between the Chelsea lines, between their their midfield and their and their defense and their defense, which is very difficult because one of the things Tuchel likes to do is he likes to have that defense and midfield 
with Jorginho and in the first half it was Kante in the second half it was Kovacic they almost play as one unit so it's very very difficult to get in between them and, and Elliot was doing as much as anyone to try and get in into those positions so he's not a direct replacement for Wijnaldum I, I think there's been a lot of chat about how Liverpool would adapt without Wijnaldum he was such an important player for them but it very much seems like Klopp is using Elliot as the player in his place and I think that's a good idea because I, I even before Wijnaldum left I felt like Liverpool needed to evolve their midfield a little bit and, and Elliot helps them do that so he started two of the the three games that Liverpool have played in the Premier League this season and it's feel, it feels like Klopp really sees him as a as a key part of his team. Indeed. Well, some fantastic entertainment here from Anfield and the Barclays. It's what we tune into it for, Liverpool against Chelsea here. Coming up after the break, a game where only one team tried to play. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Total Soccer Show, we are back. We are talking Premier League, more specifically Manchester City 5, Arsenal nil. Oh boy, Ouch. oh boy. Granite Xhaka in trouble again, once again in this game. Graham, your overview Ugh. of what took place here at the Etihad. It wasn't an afternoon to be proud of for the Gunners. No, not at all. I, I actually don't know where to begin with Arsenal at the moment. I am not an Arsenal fan, but they make me so angry right now. <laughs> <laughs> and watching them at the weekend, I was genuinely furious watching them. And particularly after Granit Xhaka, as I, I think I said this last week, like I, I, I'm very wary of veering into hot take territory. But honestly, Granit Xhaka, just utterly, utterly brainless. Um, how many times have we seen that from him? At that point of the match, away to City, in the context of the start of the season that Arsenal have had, to do that, I, I'd, be, I'd be furious, frankly, if I was an Arsenal fan, if the fact that this man's just been handed a, a long-term contract when the club was seemed to be pushing him out to, to Roma, the fact he's the captain now, how many times is Granit Xhaka <laughs> going to do this? For, I'm sorry, I, I'm going to have to stop, or I'm just going to, my blood pressure is going to get pushed up here. But yeah, this was... <laughs> This was a dreadful, dreadful performance by Arsenal. There was a tweet by... I have to read this out because it kind of summed up everything perfectly about Arsenal. There was a tweet by Sam Dean, Dean of the, the Telegraph, a reporter for Telegraph. I'm going to just read it out word for word. He says, A long-running problem of Mikel Arteta's Arsenal. It takes a lot of things to go right for them to score a goal, but only one tiny thing to go wrong for them to concede. They rarely score out of nothing, but they regularly concede out of nothing. And that, that sums it up for me with Arsenal. They, they, everything just is, Arteta, it's almost like his coaching is so intricate that as I'm repeating what Sam says there, but everything needs to go right for, the, for them to, to, to succeed. And that just isn't happening. It's not indeed. Joe, some XG figures for you here. Man City 3.92, Arsenal 0.11. My question for you, where did they get the 0.11 from? Because I can't remember that. <laughs> Was it Sucker maybe had an early scuffle? Oh, Edison maybe almost had the ball taken off him. Does that count? 
<laughs> it was I think I think Arsenal had one shot in this game, which I believe is that little bit of XG. It's this was about as lopsided of a game as you will ever see. And I think it's fair to split this into two, actually three parts. The first part, which I'm I'm not really gonna spend as much time on right now, is City being very good, right? They started the season slowly. This is a game where they could really play their game. This looked like the classic Pep 4-3-3, positional rotations, moving the ball through midfield, getting it forward and causing problems in the box. So that's part one. Part two is just really atrocious individual defending. Because we can talk about Arteta and, and, and all the things that maybe he got wrong and why this team doesn't really look like a coherent team, tactically speaking. But on the first and fifth goals, Arsenal's center backs just don't do enough to actually deal with the ball. They don't do enough basic center back things to actually cool the danger. Uh, okay, Gondwan scores in the seventh minute, and it's 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 poor defending from Arsenal in the back. And then uh, Ferran Torres scores in the 84th minute, and it's something not entirely similar, but generally similar. I mean, the center backs have to do better. So that's part two. And then part three, for me, really is the way that Arteta is setting this team up, or or if it's not his direct instructions that they're carrying out, then there's some sort of disconnect between what he's saying that may make sense tactically and what we're actually seeing. Because Arsenal in this game, they started out in this 5-3-2-3-5-2 shape that had Saka up next to Aubameyang in the front, and then Saka would drop back to the right midfield spot. And so they had some pre-planned rotations defensively, but when they were in their block, when they're in their mid-block, there was just nowhere near enough pressure on the ball. Like like the players weren't stepping forward. It looked like they didn't know when to step or where to step or how quickly to step or or what cues to use. I mean, they were just letting Rodri and City center backs break their lines, find Gunduan, and then have him go forward. That's how Ruben Diaz finds Gunduan leading to Torres's first goal in this game in the first half. I mean, it just got worse after the Granite Xhaka red card as well in the first half, and that makes sense. It just Man, everything went wrong for Arsenal in this game and it's only compounded when you're playing a team as good as you, Manchester City. You, you mentioned the press there, Joe. Um, Taylor, do you remember when Arsenal beat Manchester United in one of Arteta's? It was quite an early Arteta game. Yeah. Do you remember that? One of one of the features, and this was certainly a feature in that match, that's why I'm referencing it. One of the features of Arsenal's early play under Arteta was the way that they pressed from the front and particularly against stronger sides. It actually seemed like they were better suited to playing Higher caliber, high caliber opposition. Keep in mind that Arsenal won the FA Cup in Arteta's first season where they beat, did they beat Chelsea in the semis and then City in the final? It seemed like that yeah. was a, where, where's that gone? Where, where on earth has that gone? Where's that press gone against better teams? I mean, against any teams, yeah. but particularly against high, high caliber sides. That's baffling will- to me. I will say, like, Arsenal did have a couple nice moments in this game that did actually come from that press, to your point, Graham. They started early, and City didn't have the best beginning to this game. There were a few turnovers and build-up, and some of those turnovers were unprompted and just sloppy. But others of them were were started with Arsenal stepping high with Saka and Aubameyang up top and winning the ball, but it, it just wasn't consistent enough. And even when the press was working, they would then have to drop back into that mid-block, and then all the problems that I just mentioned started happening. I think the consistency is the key aspect there because you're right, Joe, sometimes they did it, but I, I do err on Graham's side of that. Like when you see them press and everybody's working really hard, you can see the times it does work. And there is Ed Erickson almost sort of banking the ball off of a player and into his own goal. But the other thing that I didn't hear, but I, I read in a couple different match reports was that Mikel Arteta was constantly 
uh, waving his back line to step higher. He was waving the midfield further forward, and he was basically relying on Shaka to cover a ton of ground and put out any fires that popped up as a result. But I think against a club like Manchester City, if the players are already starting to doubt the game plan, if they are not trusting the process, then there's going to be more caution and there's going to be more like standoffishness. And I think that's what started to happen for Arsenal is as soon as you feel like, oh, they found a vulnerability, ooh, they exposed some space, I think they started to drop in. I think they started to be more conservative. And it honestly reminds me of like the way I would defend when I was playing against somebody who I knew was better than me or quicker or faster that like, look, as if they're just crossing, that's that's the best scenario here. So I'm going to stand off. I'm going to let them cross. But as long as they don't beat me 1v1, then we're fine. But that was how so many goals and so many chances happened for Man City. It was Arsenal sort of being content to let them cross and not getting in their face, not disrupting what they wanted to do. And then Arsenal didn't really disrupt anything Manchester City wanted to do, but instead disrupted themselves. Because after that red card, the goal that really stood out to me was the third, where uh, the credit to the producer for showing us the very wide angle of like, like you could see the entire field from goal to goal, because that third goal is Adairson on the ball, plays to Ferran Torres, who has dropped into pretty much literally the spot where Granit Jaka would have been standing, but he's out with a red, and nobody is filling in as a result. Everyone's still kind of stepping high, and there's this huge gap, and it's Torres receives and turns, plays him Grealish. Grealish squares to Gabriel Jesus, and it's a goal. And from one goalkeeper to back of the net, it took 13 seconds. To cover the entire length of the pitch and score a goal, it took 13 seconds. That's Arsenal, to Graham's earlier point, like letting something happen from nothing. That... And Anderson with the ball at his feet in his own six-yard box, we've already talked about earlier in this game, how that could be a potential threat that Arsenal could build off of. And instead, 13 seconds later, it's another goal, I think tells you about the level of belief in that Arsenal team right now. This is Arsenal's worst start in 67 years. We had we have images of fans leaving the stadium after 36 minutes or so. And these are away fans. They've paid a lot of money to go to this game. And it's <laughs> several hours from home. Presumably they're from London, these people. So that's not a, you know, a delicate undertaking there at all. Uh, as Joe said, I think it was one shot. They didn't win a corner in this game. If you look at the heat map, there is nothing in Man City's defensive third for Arsenal at all. It's embarrassing. Taylor, for me, this... This is just a team that it's a classic case, or it appears to me that a team that is not playing for their manager. They've given up. You look at Lacazette when he comes on, just having a nice little country stroll. It seemed like, and it was. I think it was the second goal that stood out for me, where you know, no pressure at all. Just let the ball ball roll right through, and Torres can get the goal. It, it, it's. It just seems to me like the Mikel Arteta is a pr- problem there, and it's maybe the easiest problem to fix at the moment. I hope this analogy will work, but like I think of it as, as like if you're building a building and you're you're starting with the foundation, and I think when you're a new manager coming in, the foundation is basically training the fundamental principles that you want. If it's high pressing, if it's high tempo, if it's quick possession, uh, like that's the way you can go. If it's slow possession, we're going to keep it and let the ball do the defending for us. That's a way to go. But I think you drill in this basic idea that gets everybody on board, everybody in the squad understands the style you want to play and then their individual roles, broadly speaking, within it. And then from there, you can adapt or improvise. If the building plan changes, if never mind, they want this to be, uh, they want to add another bedroom, they want another floor, whatever, like you can sort of, because everybody is on the same page, you can keep working towards that new goal, that new objective, without having to go back and change a bunch of the different parts. 
what this Arsenal f- team feels like to me is maybe a, like if you're building a car is a better analogy. It's like they decided halfway through to build an SUV instead of a sports car, but then you have like two people who are still working on SUV parts, but two people who are working on sports car parts, and there doesn't seem to be this unified approach to the team. So when he makes an adjustment, when he changes one thing, rather than fixing a problem, it seems like more often than not it creates another one and sometimes creates multiple that he then has to solve, and then you don't have the players being sort of backed to figure it out and solve problems for themselves, it becomes, no, you need to stand here. No, he needs to stand there. And then it's the coach is trying to do everything. And I think you just, you don't see that team responding in the way that I'm sure Arteta would want. And you contrast it with Man City, who I believe that if Pep tells a player to don't do this, do that, they know how to do it immediately, but the team also knows how to adjust to it. And, and that level of on-the-fly improvisation of being able to change your approach is what makes Manchester City so good and so dangerous, and it's what makes Arsenal so dysfunctional right now. Did anyone catch Arteta's response to Aubameyang after the match, which I thought was was quite telling? Aubameyang said afterwards he thought there was a, a lack of commitment on the pitch, and then when Arteta was presented those quotes, his, his response was something along the lines of, I'm paraphrasing slightly a bit, well, he'd know they're the ones on the pitch or something Oof. like that, Oof. which Oof. was quite withering and I thought quite telling how those players and that manager are, they, they're not seeing eye to eye at the moment, I don't think. Yeah. And especially if your captain is saying that and then the, like, maybe I'm reading too much into that, but if the captain is saying that and the coach's response is like, I mean, he'd know. I put myself in that situation, and the reason I would say that is because I'm annoyed with the person who said that because he himself isn't really helping the situation. So to me, that reads like, oh, really? He wants to criticize work effort? Maybe start at home. Maybe start at home, Pierre. Like, that doesn't seem like a great vibe either between coach and captain. Well, we spent a lot of time talking about the worst team in the league, but how about Manchester City, (laughs) Joe? Uh, Mm -hmm. I thought they were looking pretty good here. I'm I'm quite intrigued by the front line here. Ferran Torres having a very good day with two goals and an assist. But it was um, Gabriel Zeus being used on the right wing, uh, you know, his preferred position over over being a straight nine and he was excellent in this game and Jack Grealish on the left side in the Sterling role if you were what did you think yeah so big caveat first of all because Arsenal are real real bad so City looks <laughs> real real good and I, I do think City are real real good but I, I want to make that little disclaimer there I love the front line. I thought the skill sets complemented each other really well. Having Torres drop in, and Taylor, I love how you highlighted that third goal where he really does drop so far, get on the ball, and then drive forward. And then it is over to, I mean, it's the sequence you described already. You can see all the different skill sets really working in harmony there, where Jesus crashes the box and Grealish. Man, I thought Grealish was excellent in this game on the left wing. Driving, he, he's, he always does this, whether it's with England or with Aston Villa, and now we're seeing it with City. He gets the ball on the left wing or in the left half space, and then he makes like this diagonal 45-degree angle dribble. And so he's starting on the left, and then he's making that angle inward. And he draws defenders to him, and he draws another defender, and he draws another defender. And then he just lays the ball off because he's so dangerous on the dribble. Opposing teams and opposing defenders commit to him. And then he can find an open man very, very easily. And there were a bunch of different moments like that. The most notable one was the assist on Gabriel Jesus' goal in the first half. I thought City looked excellent. Again, caveat, disclaimer, blah, blah, blah. But the, the front three especially like, actually genuinely caught my eye in this game. Definitely so. All right. Um, I've just checked on Twitter. Um, Mikel yeah. Teta still has his job as we record. Oh. That might be changing. Uh, <laughs> right. Who knows by the time we release this. But uh, Arsenal not looking so fantastic at the moment. Manchester City looking rather resplendent. We'll be back after this break with more from MLS and the continent. 
Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Total Soccer Show, we are back. We've just checked in with IMDb and looking at the uh, description <laughs> of All or Nothing, colon, Arsenal. It reads, in Amazon's third installment of All or Nothing, we uncovered a pathetic downfall of North London's second biggest club. Eesh. No European football, no faith, just vibes. I, I don't remember any vibes at this point either, but um, <laughs> we'll, we'll see Good how catch. this <laughs> It's going to be an interesting one, that's for sure, when we finally get this product at the end of the season and uh, Arsenal's relegation season. Who knows? Anyway, let's talk about a league where there is no relegation to worry about. It's MLS <laughs> Rivalry Week, or it was over the weekend. Uh, we had a goalless game in Florida between Orlando and Miami. The Sounders lost 2-0 to Portland. Uh, there was a thriller in Austin. Austin uh, losing 5-3 to Dallas, an eight-goal thriller there. And the vicious foes, the Houston Dynamo, Minnesota. Minnesota reignited their electric rivalry. 2-1 for Minnesota. <laughs> that win there. Rivalry week, everybody. Rivalry week. But um, the one we're going to talk about here is of uh, El Trafico, LAFC 3, LA Galaxy 3. Joe, did you spot any defending in this game? <laughs> uh, I tried. I looked really hard. I could not find any defending. This game, this game was awesome, right? This game was crazy, and it was every bit of the classic El Trafico matchup that we've come to expect, where there's a buttload of goals, a ton of stuff happens. I mean, it is just, it's insane how they managed to replicate this chaotic energy time after time. But oh boy, we saw, there were some tactics mixed in there too. And there's, you know, there's a few different <laughs> other things here. But man, vibes. Weather? Vibes were high. <laughs> tactics were a little on the lower side, and defending was even lower than that. Yeah, uh, the first goal, uh, was it uh, Mr. Murillo, uh, 94 against 99, Taylor? 
Two, the, I think oh, two high, the high squad numbers is an issue there in itself. But uh, uh, that yeah, some some defending happened there, right? Did it? Some defending, so uh, uh, a a version of defending for sure. I honestly don't know which is worse, that goal or the third goal. Both of them involve Mario because for this one, it's him failing to basically trap a ball, settle the ball, and then clear it, and he has to kind of play it awkwardly. Maybe it takes a deflection. Maybe that's what puts him off, but I think it goes back to the age-old adage, get your body behind the ball, and then at least your body will stop the ball. If you're trying to put a foot out to stop it, uh, chaos ensues, and in this case, a goal ensues. But then, for the for the Galaxy's uh, equalizer, their final equalizer, it's Cabral scoring, but it's Mario on Cabral two different times, and uh, both times he kind of panics and goes after... Uh, uh, is it Jovalich? Is that how I'm, I'm supposed to pronounce it? Yeah, I believe so. I, I, I'm just so used to like Jovic and Jovicic that Jovalich <laughs> is a new one for me. Uh, but the, I think they're so focused on him because he had scored uh, the brace already that Mario twice just completely vacates the space he's supposed to be defending and the person he's supposed to be defending more specifically just to try to go make a play. And I think I've sent you all those screen grabs of at various points, Jovalich has like four LAFC players around him and still holds onto the ball, still lays it off. And I think, yeah, Bob Bradley... Maybe it was just like, you know what, guys, just go out there and have fun. And in which case, they did, and I'm sure he's happy. But if there was any defensive instruction, he is not happy <laughs> I, with his back line. I, I, ha- I have a friend. Uh, I ha- I'm going somewhere with this. I have a friend who moved to the to the States over the over the weekend. And so he watched this game on, on, on the TV. He doesn't watch MLS normally, but he is a, he is a football fan. And so I'm kind of tweet, uh, sorry, messaging him as, the, as we're both watching this game. And he's asking me a little bit about how MLS works. I'm explaining, well, the, the designated player rule and so on. And midway through this game, he goes, so I guess they don't spend much money on defenders in MLS. <laughs> <laughs> and I think he was, I don't think that was a, I don't think that was a jibe. I think he was genuinely asking that question, which after watching this game, I could understand how he would come to that conclusion. It's kind of true, I guess. It's like the Galaxy spent money on Abel Xavier like many years ago, and then that just imploded spectacularly. And it seems like the entire league was like, you know what? Never mind. Unless it's Liam Ridgewell, we're not spending any money on defenders. We'll see how this plays out. <laughs> oh, Xavier had great hair. What a memory. Um, they didn't, uh, Galaxy didn't spend much money on Dejan Lovelic as well. He was, he is uh, an under-22 an under initiative striker, I should say. The under-22 initiative in MLS allows clubs to sign up to three young players aged 22 and younger and basically they have a, a reduced budget charge so he's not costing too much for them either uh joe brian rodriguez brian rodriguez let's talk about him and that second goal wow for a start that was that's surely <laughs> one of the goals of the season that little um, dazzling run he did into the box there is he ready to break out, do you think, this season? He's, um, I'm reading two goals in 31 MLS games uh, since 2019 before this point, but uh seems like he's something special. He is something special, and the, it's so bizarre to me, and I don't understand why we haven't been seeing that over the last couple of years. LAFC play, uh, paid a, a club record fee for him, and since arriving in MLS, he hasn't really done anything of note. And he went out on loan to the Spanish Second Division, and he's back now because apparently nobody wanted Brian Rodriguez on the international transfer market. But you can see in this game just how incredibly good he is. This goal in particular, the, the first of the two that he has, really does have to be a goal of the year contender. LAFC have the ball. Uh, they lose it, then they counterpress to get it back. Uh, they're, they're playing in and around the box. Diego Rossi shoots, and the, eventually the ball comes over to Brian Rodriguez on the left side of the box. And he slaloms past three players, gets closer to the end line, and then just finishes from the left side of the box at a crazy tight angle. And that goal puts LAFC up 2-1. to one. And it, it could have been the game winner. It didn't turn out to be. But man, 
Nothing I could have just said did, actually did that goal justice. Go look it up. I cannot encourage you listeners to go look it up strongly enough. What a sequence and also a goal. And man, this, this embodies how LAFC want to play. LAFC had some sustained pressure in the final third. They had aggressive play from their wingers, both Rossi and Rodriguez in this sequence and, and even backing up a little bit further. The whole sequence comes from forcing a turnover with their high press and then losing the ball and counterpressing, like I already mentioned. This checked all the boxes for a Bob Bradley LAFC kind of goal. It just keeps getting undone by some of those individual defensive errors, and, and that's a big part of the reason why LAFC are not in the playoff picture right now. They are not. They are ninth in the Western Conference at the moment, Joe. LA Galaxy are fourth. Uh, Joe, if you had to say who's going to finish higher, is it? Galaxy? Galaxy. It's got to be, right? Greg Vanny deserves so much credit. The The Galaxy have been in a bit of a dip of form over the last three or four games. But I, I left this game feeling very impressed with this team and specifically the way they did play through LAFC's press. They've just completely changed their identity from the Guillermo Barscaloto days into something that now actually has something beyond hopeful crosses and passing to Zlatan. They actually have a plan. And even though the form has not been quite as good over the last stretch of games, this is a good team that I think has established a lot of the tactical and personnel building blocks that are going to help them down the line. Joe, I can I, sorry, I was just going to ask. I was going to ask Joe a question, or for anyone who who wants to to answer, switching it to the to the LAFC side of things. Obviously, the the Galaxy have had a a reboot um, with with Vanny, and obviously the LA, LAFC are not coming from as low a point as the Galaxy were. But the, with Vela, I saw him him talking during the All Star game. He gives a, an answer when he's asked if he might go back to Europe. He says perhaps. I saw some chat about kind of Bob Bradley and. Kind of his future is, is are the LA, are LAFC kind of reaching the end of a of a cycle and and does players like Brian Rodriguez coming through and taking on more of a prominent role is that is that the next cycle? I think LAFC certainly hopes so. There's a lot of uncertainty around that organization. Maybe there's more certainty inside, but for us on the outside, there are a lot of question marks. Bob Bradley's contract is up at the end of this year. Carlos Velo's contract is up at the end of this year. Those are the two most important people in this organization. And we don't know what their futures are going to look like. We don't know who's going to be coaching this team next season. Bob Bradley has done a fantastic job, by and large. And this season, their numbers are still really good. In a lot of moments, the eye test still has them as a really good team. But they've been struggling. They cannot get results in the way that they need to to climb up that Western Conference table. I I hope Bob Bradley's back in LA because I've enjoyed watching this team play over the last three, four years, however long they've been in this league. But it could be the start of a new era after the season's over in L.A. Indeed. This one, very exciting uh, edition of El Trafico 3-3, which it was actually a couple of years ago. It was the same score, wasn't it, when Zlatan was involved, 3-3 as well. So um, next time they play, bet on six goals happening. That's my advice <laughs> to you, listener. Um, why don't we move over to the continent? Uh, let's go to Spain. Barcelona back to winning ways with a 2-1 home win over Hetafe. No Pedri in that one. First time in forever. Got a little break there, but Memphis Depay scoring once again. Real Madrid won on the road at Batiste. Uh, they went top on goal difference with Gareth Bale getting another start here. We had an Eden Hazard cameo there too. In Germany on Friday night, Borussia Dortmund got a 3-2 home win over Hoffenheim. Hoffenheim equalised to make it 2-2 in the 90th minute. Who stepped up in the 91st? That's right, Erling Haaland. Uh, Bayern Munich did a, did a big win over Hertha, 5-0. And uh, I think I think I mentioned on a previous pod how it's going to be 2008 again because Wolfsburg are top of the league. They're the only team with 3-3 three and three at the moment. They beat IB Leipzig on Sunday night. Jesse Marsh, uh, two losses from his opening three there, Taylor. Worried for Jesse Marsh at all? 
I mean, I would be, except that what, like part of the reason for that is that Bayern Munich just won't stop pillaging them. Like, I, I, I think I saw other people making this point, but it's worth reiterating that, like, I don't know many other situations in which a club has lost their manager, their best defender, and probably their best creative attacker and like goal scorer in one season, let alone to one club. But Bayern Munich have poached all three of those things from Leipzig. So I think for Marsh, uh, my assumption would be that he was brought in Maybe to challenge right away, but I feel more likely was like the expectations are minimal right now. Next season, they'll be higher, but we're giving you at least half a season to sort of figure some things out, get everybody on board. That's my hope. I don't know if that's how the Leipzig board will be operating or be viewing these results. But I think when you're losing Sabitzer, you're losing up a Meccano, you're trying to bet in a lot of young players bought for decent value. Hopefully there's some leeway there. That is definitely being said with uh, red, white, and blue glasses on. <laughs> well, I, for one, welcome our new Wolfsburg overlords. In Syria, <laughs> a Ronaldo-less Juve went down 1-0 at home to Empoli and Simone Inzaghi's Inter are still going great guns with a 3-1 win at Verona. Both Roman clubs have maximum points to Tammy Abraham, on the score sheet once again for Roma in their 4-0 win over Salernitana. Hope I said that right. There's a nice video of Jose Mourinho, by the way, on the train home eating a giant pizza yeah. with a giant Not deep fried. Not <laughs> deep good. fried. I know it's not it's not the same if it's not on a bed of fries and it's been deep fried <laughs> itself and it was a a one ninety nine uh pizza. Can I say everybody on that train had to hate him, not because of the smell, but like I, I know what train food looks like. I don't know if it's better in Europe, but I know what Amtrak like here's your sandwich that was maybe made in nineteen ninety seven. Uh it's it's not the best and when you have to eat that and then there's a person seated in the same cat like carriage as you who has this beautiful gourmet pizza i would not enjoy that person so i'm hoping somebody was jealously eating like a gross egg salad sandwich while Josie marino uh, grinned happily yeah but what you what you don't know taylor is in italy every train they have a conductor and they have a pizza maker <laughs> of course yeah the brick oven car yeah of course yeah <laughs> Well, speaking of pizza, we need to move on to the most important league in the world, Liga Uber Eats. Pizza, Uber Eats. I made the link. I made the link. I made it happen. Uh, Rem took on PSG. Uh, PSG getting a 2-0 win at Stade de Rem. A big night for the Argentine Jack Grealish, Lionel Messi, uh, getting half an hour to play in this one. But as we mentioned at the top of the show, no Messi-Neymar combo here. Mm. We had the switcheroo here. The old switcheroo potch played on us here. Um, Joe, what did you make of this one? It seems like PSG, yes, they have all the riches in the world and some good players, but still a bit vulnerable on the counter. Yeah, hugely vulnerable on the counter. I thought Rem was excellent in this game. They took advantage of the space that's naturally there in PSG's 4-3-3 shape, right? You think about the personnel that PSG have and the shape that Pochettino sets them up in. It was that 4-3-3, like I just mentioned, but the wingers, right? It's It was Di Maria and Neymar in most of the moments in this game, and then it was Messi a little bit later, and sometimes Mbappe would rotate out wide. None of those players do a whole lot of defending. None of those players do a whole lot of tracking back. And so Rem knew that. They came into this game with a clear game plan. They set up in the first half in this 4-4-2 block, and they pressed, and then they dropped, but they always got pressure on the ball. And then they'd send runners either in behind, which is what they did early on, and then I think they started sending them a little bit wider. So the the the, the moment that I really pinpointed here is the 13th minute, and Cabal, who I thought was brilliant for Rem in this one, uh, got the ball out wide on Rem's right wing, PSG's left wing, and Neymar is just nowhere to be found. So Adrissa Ganage has to slide over, and then Cabal darts inside and plays this dangerous through ball into the box. It was it was a great game plan from Rem, and PSG looked vulnerable. They still looked incredibly talented and chaotic, but in kind of a good way. 
in possession. They had the talent to win this game. But PSG right now are not, you know, they're not this impenetrable fortress. They have some weaknesses, and we saw that over the weekend. They certainly do. Uh, Taylor, of all the talent they have, it's Hakimi who's standing out to me at the moment, who yep. had another excellent game here at right back. Yeah, and I love how people have to write about him because when you're signing Messi and trying to hold on to Mbappe for the amount of money that's being discussed, like I think I saw one report talking about him as like a bargain basement signing. It's like, I don't think I would go that way, <laughs> but he is definitely like a less heralded signing who on any other club would be the signing of the summer and is justifying that second status because he is so good and does so many things and gives them the sort of defensive but very clever wide attacker they need, mostly attacker a little bit defending. Uh, but it allows Angel Di Maria to roam around. Same thing with Neymar if he ends up on that side. And I think probably same thing for Messi when he's on that side. I think it reminds me of his Dortmund days when they would basically give him the entire right side of the field and just say, like, all right, go do what you need to do. We don't need anybody on that side except for you. PSG seemed to have learned their lesson from that. And I think Hakimi, uh, a very smart buy for PSG in a summer of... Uh, a lot of buys, a lot of transactions for them. But I think Hakimi was probably one of the biggest, maybe not the biggest, but a very big one. Certainly important for them, yeah. And Graham, Leon Messi getting getting half an hour on at the end here. Did he touch the ball, do anything? I can't quite remember. Um, He touched the ball and, and did kind of nice, tidy, messy things without actually kind of having any real goal threat but yeah I, I've actually just read while recording that it seems like Real Madrid are not, are not getting Mbappe it seems to have been widely briefed in the last kind of half hour if Mbappe was signing for Real Madrid and this was our only chance to see Neymar Mbappe and uh, Messi in a front three I would have been seriously ticked off with with Pochettino this was our this was our only chance but it seems like that is actually going to going to going to happen this season and actually I was thinking during this game I was covering this game that Mbappe leaving gives PSG a really big problem because obviously you'd think Messi is going to play on the right side he that's where he came on in this game for the last 30 minutes Neymar on the left I know it was a it was a switch in this game but when everyone's fit and firing that's how it'll be so if Mbappe goes you know who's who's through the middle I mean they do have a card day so let's not pretend that PSG don't have other options but yeah it's it's not the it's not the perfect fit for that for that front line so Yes, it's good news for PSG that, that Mbappe is, is staying. I, I still feel like with what Joe was saying, this, this team doesn't feel set yet. And one of the things to mention is they've still got a lot of players to come in. So Sergio Ramos is maybe the, the biggest one still to come in. And I've, I've covered every PSG uh, game this season for Eurosport waiting for Messi to make his debut. <laughs> uh, we're four games in now, but um, it, they've all followed a similar pattern of PSG taking control of games and then allowing that control to slip, allowing their grip to slip. And I just think someone like Ramos is, will make a big difference in that regard. He'll, he'll have players around him much more focused. And so I think he'll, as I say, make a big difference. The other one is, unfortunately for Keylor Navas, who I didn't feel like needed replacing, the Donnarumma coming in seems to have completely unsettled him. He's had a really poor start to the season. There's a disallowed Rem goal in this in this game where he makes a pretty poor save and then it's bundled in from close range and he gets away gets away with it from, with the, the VR offside call. But Donnarumma coming into this team, I think, will make a big difference because Navas has been culpable for a couple goals in, in the first four games they've played. And, and, and that's a bit of a shame because I think he he is better than he's showing right now and he deserves to play first team for one of the, the big, the big and, and uh, the best teams in Europe. But 
Yeah, there's there. Are, you can see what Pochettino's trying to do. It's just not quite there yet. Graham, with um, you're doing the Eurosport minute by minutes for these PSG games. Did did the traffic spike in the last half an hour of this one as people were clamoured to see what Rudvan had to say about Messi? <laughs> I don't think anyone cares what I've got to say about Messi. But yeah, there were there were certainly more people tracking it um, when Messi came on. I also saw that. In France, uh, the domestic audience for this game was 10 million, which is the most watched league on game of all time. Wow. So that right there is the messy effect. And wasn't this that they didn't even have the rights sorted out a few weeks ago? Yeah, so obviously in the summer there, there was a, I think it was Media Pro as a Barcelona based um broadcaster pulled out they couldn't they couldn't uh, pay the money that they had agreed to pay Ligon and it was a big contract and and so they pulled out early in the summer and then it was a case of Ligon maybe not finding a broadcaster and Canal Plus who is who are kind of the sky sports of of uh, of of France they couldn't get a deal done with them and now they now they've got a hybrid deal with Canal Plus and uh, and Amazon Prime so they got sorted in the end but that was a few weeks before Messi actually arrived and I'm wondering if they now wish they'd held off on those negotiations because they might have been <laughs> worth that contract might have been worth a bit more now hmm, indeed um, Taylor, uh, as we say, um, PSG do have uh, a couple of faults and, and, you know, are a bit vulnerable at the back at times. But do you think they can finally do what they failed to do last year and win League R? <laughs> uh, yeah, I think they got a pretty good chance. I think as long as they're able to stay kind of focused and like on that objective, I think maybe now that they haven't won it, they can go back to like, okay, now we have to actually try and stay focused uh, in the league. And thus far, they're doing just that. But I also I I agree with Graham. I think keeping Mbappe will end up being a way bigger deal for them because I think some of the stubbornness to lose him is still wanting to have that idea that like no we are now the club that buys everybody. We never have to sell anybody unless we want to. But I also do agree that I think that he he is a player that you cannot replace. And yeah, they've got players who can be the big target number 9 or can be a false 9 or can make runs off the ball, but he can do so many different things. Thinking about his versatility and the way he's able to get on the end of balls, I think of the the saying like "close only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades," and I would add like "and balls in the vague vicinity of Kylian Mbappe." Because <laughs> if you get it near him, he will bring that ball down. He will get on the end of it. He will adjust his run to find a way to connect. And and I think he gives them so many different looks. I don't think of Neymar and Messi as being poachers or getting on the end of one in the box and just tapping it in. I think of them as creating from nothing. And so to have all of these different attacking options, even if they do leave themselves vulnerable and go a goal or two down, I will kind of always back them to at least score one or two in the fight back. Exciting times for PSG's project. Yay, soccer. So uh, that just about wraps up the weekend (laughs) review. Oh, wait, what's this on the running order? Someone shoved an old firm derby on here. Graham, was that you? Always, yep. There's one every uh, couple of weeks. (laughs) Rangers won Celtic nil here. Uh, Rangers wearing their very expensive branded shirts that Newcastle wear. Uh, Are they a a couple (laughs) hundred quid each, those shirts, I imagine, Graham? Yeah, I think they're worth uh, more than a few players that are on the bench, actually. <laughs> so before we get into the the game itself, Graham, you, you, you're a Glasgow resident. What is this city like at the moment? Are the, uh, with, with the stadiums full now, are people out in the streets? Uh, does it feel like there's more of an atmosphere in the city on game day? What, what's what's the situation? Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely more of an atmosphere. On Saturday, or sorry, on uh, Sunday, the game was, I, I, I'm not entirely convinced it was a it was a better atmosphere just because um, there was a lot of how would you say, contentious, I would say racist uh, chanting from groups of, of, of loyalists. I'm, I'm going to 
put out there with Rangers fans primarily for this game because there's only Rangers fans at that game. That's one a quirk of the kind of COVID uh, situation at the moment. It's only it was only home gate home fans for this game. So yes, it was it was Rangers fans. Um, so I don't I don't know if that's if that's better, but certainly uh, good to to see the the stadium full. I mean these these games felt really weird with no fans inside them. This this is one of the games that just you, you, it just doesn't feel like the same fixture. It doesn't feel like the same spectacle. And this was also a really... The build-up to this game was really interesting because I don't think anyone really knew what to expect from the two teams. Rangers have started really slowly this season. They were utterly dominant last season. They have not been the same force this season. And while Celtic started really equally poorly, if not worse, under new, ma- their new manager Ange Postcoglu, a lot of his new ideas are starting to take root. And before this game, they were playing some scintillating football. So it was, it was an eagerly anticipated one. I, that, I, this is the, the most I've looked forward to, to one of these games for a while. I don't think it lived up to that billing. But it was certainly interesting. Um, Joe, which, which old firm did you prefer? This one, the one the week before, or the one the week before that? I was quite partial to actually the one four weeks ago, Ryan. I thought that one had just the best end-to-end play. So yeah, that, that's my old firm of the of the month. That's my old firm of the month. Old firm of the month. Old firm. <laughs> Do they have an old firm of the month award in Scotland, Graham? Yeah, player of the month, manager of the month, goal of the month, old firm of the month. Oh dear, excellent stuff. Taylor, any thoughts on this game? Alfredo Morales, he's a player, isn't he? It definitely did happen, this game. That, that's a thing I can confirm. I, I thought it was fun. I thought for a game that didn't have many goals, it definitely had the intensity. It was another one that I think benefited from having some fans in the stands. I think Liverpool, Liverpool and Chelsea was the one that stood out to me. It was like, oh, right, fans make this way more fun. Uh, but the atmosphere that was there. It's still one of those games that you get the intensity. You can tell that players maybe going a little bit harder than they would otherwise. And it was... Uh, sad to not have uh, Scott Brown there to to balance out Morales, but you know, in the end, it's all fine. Yeah, that felt weird. An old firm without without uh, without Scott Brown in there. I actually think, uh, even though we're talking about the fans benefiting the spectacle, I, I actually felt like the football might have suffered, and we actually went back to how these games tend to be, which is there aren't many chances. There's not all that much excitement. It's all a bit scrappy. And last season, yeah. I felt like the games weren't that at all. I, I think we last season we saw much purer football huh. matches between these two sides. And so in a footballing sense, they were more enjoyable, but just the spe- the spectacle needs fans. And I'll, I'll take that. I'll take that payoff. I'll, 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 at the cost of the footballing quality, I'll take the spectacle over that. Indeed. I'll drink to that. That just about wraps up our weekend review. Taylor Walkwell, it's been a pleasure chatting with you today, sir. Right back at you, buddy. Joe Lowry, likewise. Oh, thank you, Ryan. And Graham, ditto. Thanks, Ryan. <laughs> it's always fun. <laughs> Getting lazy with these outros now. Anyway, listener, thank you very much. We'll be back next time. Bye. Bye. 